So welcome to the CX4CA podcast. We've got a, a great interview for you today with Nick Malone, the COO of Cycle. We're going to be talking about his glittery rugby career um, and uh, the expanse um, through international markets and sort of Central Asia and get his opinion there um, and understand more about um, you know, his views of the digital transformation market globally um, and what that, that's meant for his role as COO of Sitecore and how he's taken that business um, you know, into a, a much more sort of you know, SaaS-based world. Um, and so we've got a great conversation. So, Nick, welcome, uh, and thank you very much for being here. That's an absolute pleasure, George. Thanks for uh, having me. So, Nick, maybe you could we could just start off. For those that don't know, um, you're the CEO of Sitecore. Maybe you could just tell us a, a bit about Sitecore and, and who they are and what they do. Yeah, so Sitecore, well, I guess, uh, you know, we're in the customer experience business. That's, that's, our, that's our thing, and uh, I guess with a digital flavor to it. Um, you know, and as uh, the company's been around for a just over twenty years, uh, founded in the in the in the Nordics, uh, by some passionate folks who've uh, who saw an opportunity right then, as as the world sort of, uh, sort of relatively recently given birth to you know the internet and so on, and websites became a thing, and, and they've they've grown you know very well over since over the next uh, sort of two couple of decades, and it's been a a great journey and a pleasure to be joining them, you know, as two and a half years ago from now. So after they just tipped uh, into the twenty year mark. And I've been actually, I've been tipped off that uh, apparently you could have been a, a superstar rugby player um, and uh, back in your Loughborough days. Is this true or have I been, been misled? Uh, marginally misled, George. You know, my, uh, my rugby, I thoroughly enjoyed it, played a lot of it, uh, enjoyed, uh, enjoyed every moment on the, on the pitch, broke a few bones along the way. Uh, it was good fun. <laughs> Yours uh, or other people's? Uh, predominantly mine, actually. <laughs> uh, yeah, it wasn't the plan, but no, yeah, it was good fun. Uh, did a lot of rugby. Um, you know, schoolboy stuff. Played a little bit uh, Bath Colts, and then and then at Loughborough, which was, I guess, uh, the highlight of my uh, rugby career. Had uh, the chance to step onto the hallowed turf uh, at the end of the year at, at Twickenham, and unfortunately, we lost, George. So that that was the kind of the the pinnacle moment, and it was uh, a snip from us uh, in the closing moments of the of the game, and a, a penalty went the wrong way right in front of the posts. You know, and that was the end of that. Uh, yeah, we got pipped at the post. Do you ever, quite literally, so, and do you ever sort of find yourself waking up at 2am in the morning just remembering that sort of, you know, that penalty as your sort of, your glory days, your one opportunity? To, to be fair, it was the, it's one of the very few moments uh, of my career, both either sport or, or otherwise, where, I, where I've seen uh, 15, I think we call us grown men at that point, you know, in our early 20s. Yeah, a little bit teary uh, in that moment. It was, it was uh, yeah, that's the bit I reflect on. It was a, a very emotional day. Uh, having sort of worked all the way through uh, the seasons to to get to that point, but yeah, nevertheless a fantastic experience. Great yeah. to see. Uh, there wasn't eighty five thousand people in the stadium, but there, there were probably four or five thousand students, parents, and, and the like. So it was like, it was a good atmosphere. I suppose, and um, you know, I interviewed a, a colleague of yours, Lee, who um, you know had a similar sort of story around sort of football. And I suppose I was taken by by that, and probably by your example as well of. Actually, there'd be many people out there who are genuinely sort of deciding whether to go into business and sort of, you know, follow that sort of part of their persona or actually sort of, you know, take a tilt at, at, at a professional game. And I don't know whether you ever felt like you were genuinely ever sort of, you know, good enough to make it, but you must have been pretty good to be playing in those games. You were never tempted to kind of have a go for a few years and sort of see if you could make it? I think benefit of hindsight, that would have been that would have been the route to go, to, to give it a give it a whirl. Um you know, we always uh, have our regrets. That's probably one of mine, actually. Um, not that I would necessarily have been good enough to to make it uh, to the dizzy heights of 
you know, making it a proper professional career. Um, but it would have been fun trying. Um, so I've got a couple of kids, and I definitely in, encourage them to uh, pursue their interests more than just going straight into what inevitably is a, a long career of uh, you know various uh, jobs to do. I mean, be able to run around a, a sports field uh, with your mates, kick a ball around, or whatever it is. Uh, I think it's you can definitely put a few years aside to to enjoy that experience if you can. <laughs> but. Um, you know, for good or ill, you went uh, you went a different way. So tell me, what, what was that sort of? Um, you, you're leaving Loughborough. You're looking for a career. What was your What was your thinking at that time? Where did Where did you go to? Well, it was uh, actually my, my first inkling was to to follow the flow and go up to London and get some, you know, get into the uh, banking industry. It seemed to be the trend at the time. Uh, people seemed to be uh, having a lot of fun and making a lot of money at the same time. Um, that didn't turn out to be the case for me. I ended up uh, taking a step into the software world. Um, which, to be fair, I mean, although I studied engineering at university, manufacturing engineering, um, I hadn't really consciously focused on, on software as an avenue. But uh, turns out that uh, you know that was an interesting, and, and I think fortuitous uh, sector to get into because it's uh, you know it served us well over the last well all the way through my career from from ninety seven. Technology uh, uh, has been a changing environment, and, and a lot of opportunities uh, presented themselves, and you know. Clearly, hopefully, that's going to continue to be the case for some time to go. But, uh, yeah. yeah, starting your career, I suppose, around about that time, around sort of late nineties, was really, I suppose, the time when it all started to kick, kick off. I mean, you know, in terms of the internet and sort of the change in nature of all of those industries. I mean, to, as you say, to to enter that software world must have felt like a, a sort of small vertical. But now, you know, software is every business, and transformation is every business, I suppose. But you know, so you, um, I mean, just thinking about what that. That, that looks like you joined on the south side, on the engineering side, um, you know, the operation side. What would talk, and I, I want to come to SAP in a second because I know that's a, a big part of your career, but what was that sort of journey towards SAP look like? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the first company I worked for was a, uh, a French uh, publicly traded company called Electra, uh, and they've been serving the market predominantly in fashion and textiles industry. So they provide you know, software for designing apparel or furniture and, and whatnot. They also provide all the equipment that is used in factories for then cutting up uh, the fabric ready for, for manufacturing, for the rest of the manufacturing process. And um, they were looking to get more into what they called the industrial textiles. So what does that mean? It means, you know, aerospace, automotive uh, and the likes. And just to sort of maybe give you the parallel there, which is, what do you mean fabrics in, in aerospace? So, you know, an aeroplane, a lot, a lot of the components of an aeroplane are made of carbon fibre. That carbon fibre essentially is a fabric that comes on a roll pre-impregnated with a, a resin, which is treated the same way uh, as you, you do any other garment. It's, you, know, you, you draw a pattern, you cut it into a shape, you put it into a mould, goes into a, a, a you know, high-pressure, high-temperature environment, comes out solid. That Formula One cars, the entire Formula One car, except for the metal components, is predominantly made of carbon fibre, very lightweight, very strong. So they wanted someone who had the engineering background who could go and... You know, have those discussions and break into those industries and um, it bridged you know from from the, the traditional fashion and uh, apparel sector into these adjacent uh, sectors and uh, yeah it was a good fit we, we did well we grew the business in the UK quite strongly um, I did three years for the company here and uh, you know I guess put my head above the parapet was was looking to see where my next uh, chapter would be and uh, I was working on a project with the, the gentleman that was running the business in the Americas. Um, with you know, it was a project with Boeing. Um, and over the course of that project, we got to know each other a bit. And then he said, "Look, Dave, 
don't do, why would you leave lecture? You're a young man in my, I guess, early to mid twenties at the time. So, why do you come and live in in the US? Come over here; it's great fun. So, uh, long story short, you know, I signed up and moved across a few months later with my uh, couple of bags, and uh, had yeah three wonderful years in in the US, living down in uh, Atlanta, Georgia. And how did you how did you find that? I mean, because I think you grew up in Wells, right? Which is uh, for those who don't know, uh, I would argue a, a very beautiful but quite sleepy cathedral town, mm-hmm. right? And so, and actually to go to um, to go to Georgia, to go to the US must have been a, a change, right? It must have been a different. Talk, talk to me about what that was like. Yeah, as I said, well, Wells is the second smallest uh, city in, in the UK. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a lovely bubble to grow up in. But um, yeah, Atlanta was great. I mean, I have to say, uh, you, you learn a lot when you, you're quite naive, I guess, in your, in your early 20s, um, going, going on my first international foray. A uh, lot of fun. Um, I remember literally you know, doing my calls to my customers uh, from the office and, and plotting my, my journey. Because, of course, I was, I was looking after customers all over the country. And the first thing you realize is that it's a big place. <laughs> I mean, in the UK, you can drive from one end to the other, you know, at least within the day easily. Um, in the US, it's not quite that simple. So I, I was uh, plotting my journey about how I was going to go across to Arkansas and then off up to different places. And, uh, and the chap that I was working to at the time said, what are you doing? I said, I'm, I'm plotting my route. And he goes, you're not going to drive. You just you just fly. You know, so it was that degree of uh, naivety coming out of, uh, you know, in, in that stage of my career uh, to enter into the US. And then literally I spent the following three years uh, jetting around from, from east to west coast, north to south. Um, yeah, it was, it was a really uh, good experience, both from a, a business side, but also living in the US in your 20s as a, in a, a young, ambitious, enthusiastic chap, it was it was great fun. Yeah, yeah. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And did you see difference in the the customers? Obviously, you know, um, different ways of working. I mean, they 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 say often that you know we're two countries divided by a sort of a common language, and you know, and there's different ways of working and different mentality towards sort of you know business. Did you see much of a division between the sort of the the, the British way of working and the American way of working? De- definitely, as a Brit in the U.S. twenty years ago, or whenever, yeah, a bit longer than that now. When I was there, um, you know, the, the, it seemed to be quite easy to to access uh, to prospective customers, and it, it was just simply the fact that, that at that time an English accent uh, was well received, um, and, and for whatever reason, it, it allowed you to to have a enough time on the phone to to secure your meeting and and go and uh, do your pitch. So it served me well, and um, yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed uh, enjoyed the experience there. I mean. It, People in, in the U.S., it, it's just a little bit more uh, predictable. You know, there's there's less um, politics, can I put, uh, and there's probably a more direct, you know, process that you can go through. And as long as you apply all the things that you 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 know you've been taught and you know how to execute a sales process, I think um, yeah, it's pretty straightforward stuff. It's good, and of course, it's a big place. Companies are bigger, so traditionally, you know, you're, you're finding yourself doing bigger transactions. Um, that's how that was at least my experience. Some working in the US versus uh, here in the UK. But you didn't stay. You stayed three years and then you're on, on to Pastures New. What, what came next? I did, yeah. Well, actually, I was lured back to the UK to work for a US uh, publicly traded company called uh, PTC Parametric Technology Incorporated. Again, in the software world, they do the 3D modeling software and uh, lifecycle management. So uh, it, was, um, yeah, it was, again, leveraging, I guess, my knowledge and experience of engineering. That was what we were, were pitching. Um, and, and, and on a product lifecycle management piece, this is sort of the, 
the discussion about enterprise software and, and how you drive it. So it was uh, a return to the UK, came back, um, settled in uh, Leamington Spa for a few years, and uh, yeah, went out selling some PTC software. Very different environment. I mean, culture is a business. This is, uh, this is where you learn what a sales culture is all about. Yeah. Um, PTC was known as um, an organization which uh, didn't suffer fools. You know, you had uh, the first quarter you came on board, you were going to be going to boot camp, you were learning the product, you were drilled hard. Second quarter, you were building your pipeline. Third quarter, you were, you were closing some of that pipeline or, or you were probably uh, under the, a deep spotlight, should we say. So yeah. it was very much a, a very different uh, culture than, than I'd experienced at Lectra. Definitely, um, you know, uh, learnt a lot there um, and appreciate, you know, the, the differences of companies from a, a sales perspective. Um, yeah, and, that, and, and three three glorious years at PTC before stepping into the world of ERP with uh, Infor. So, and yeah. uh, so, I mean, talk to me about that and uh, about SAP. I mean, ERP is a, you know, different space to those, those, uh, those, um, those previous businesses, but was very buoyant at that that time right in the sort mm-hmm. of the, the early 2000s um and i mean uh, help me understand what that that looks like and also i'm all conscious that you also took other international forays into sort of you know other parts of the world mm-hmm. and left the uk again maybe you can tell us a little bit about that yeah well in, in for um i guess it was a it was a you know private equity backed uh, firm that was growing uh, predominantly through acquisition they were acquiring companies with different uh, enterprise uh, applications, uh, be it Barn or Vpix or what have you, they, they basically uh, pulled together a portfolio of products and um, uh, they were growing, uh, growing quite nicely, but there was very much a different business model there. Um, and the challenge uh, for someone coming into to that company at that time um, was that the brand was unknown. So, so as, as a sales guy, that was quite challenging because, you, you know, you're trying to sell um, you know, you had to get your access to the C-suite because you're talking about ERP software. That's fairly big ticket items. Um, you know, c- committee decisions with, with lots of different stakeholders. Um, but you're an unknown brand. Some of the brands that that Info had acquired were still known well, um, but perhaps were, were deemed more legacy than anything else. So it was a tough. It was tough sell, and and I didn't really truly appreciate that until three years later. I moved to to SAP, which was a very different experience. You know, when you You'd be on a, uh, an airplane, someone would say to you, who do you work for? When I was at Infor, it was Infor. We do ERP, I-N-F-O-R. You know, when it's SAP, the person next to you definitely heard of the company. It was whether they were a big fan or, or, or not so much of a fan that was that was the, the situation. Yeah. And I suppose that must help in a very real way because I imagine the only people who really buy ERP are the C-suite because of the very nature of it actually sort of running the business. And so that kind of name recognition, unless you're sort of a, an early adopting business, you know, they're going to want, it's like you know, people want Pepsi or Coke, right? They're going to want the number one, number two sort of player mm-hmm. in the market. So it must be hard for the Enforce as well to break in as a sort of a challenger brand into that space. Is that is that fair? Yeah, I think, well, I think... Um yeah, it's always more difficult to, to win against an established brand, which is why uh, companies try to identify a particular uh, niche area to get their uh, dominance, whether it be an industry-specific move or if they're looking in a, a new geography uh, to establish a beachhead. But um, definitely in the case of Infor, um, you know, the business had evolved and you know, that because they, were, um, they had some fairly uh, ambitious growth uh, objections, objectives and then seeking, to, I guess, to... To monetize that at some point, the the strategy was different than 
than a company, you know, if you, if you think of, of SAP or if you think of Cycle, you know, company that's truly trying to drive innovation uh, and push the boundaries of the next next curve. It's a it's a different proposition. It's a different mindset. It's a different culture that that, that comes with that. So, yeah. and I mean, as you say, SAP was large. I mean, at the time would have been probably the second largest software business in the world, right? And you know, so it's huge. I mean, how did you? What was your your part of it? What was your niche? How did you find your your, your part of SAP? And and what did you get up to there? Good question. So, well, I had uh, I had two chapters at SAP. Um, the first one uh, was was possibly the most interesting. Um, that was the first challenge was to to go and run the business uh, in Central Asia, um, which was you know kind of shot out of the blue really. Um, didn't know anything about Central Asia. Did didn't know anything about Central Asia at all actually. Um, so obviously, first question I had to do was go and uh, do a bit of research. But no, how did it come about? There was a gentleman uh, who was actually my current boss. Um, Steve Jukakis was was looking after uh, the CIS region, so that former Soviet uh, region for for SAP, and geographically the business was predominantly in Russia, um, but there's a lot of landmass that goes around that. And Steve's query was, you know, there must be business there. Um, who can we find that would be <laughs> who would be um, you know up for the challenge, shall we say, uh-huh. uh, of going and taking it on? So. Long story short, I ended up moving to uh, Kazakhstan to a place called Almaty, uh, which was the former uh, um, capital city of the country, uh, with my wife, Anna, and, and our two kids who were six months and uh, 14 months old at the time. So that will tell you a little bit about the, the character of my, my wife. Um, yeah, we, we, we jumped on a plane and, and off we went. And uh, it was a really, it was definitely a, a, a growth experience, shall we say. I mean, it's a, an environment just to give you sort of, firstly, the, the geography is big. I mean, it's, it's the ninth largest country on the planet. So it's to the southern border of, of Russia and, and borders to China to the east. Mm. It's landlocked. Um, the, it also sits, or Almaty sits on a, on a uh, fault line, so subject to earthquakes. Um, you're a little bit remote in terms of uh, medical help. So again, Quite, quite a leap of faith with, with two toddlers uh, in, in arms. Um, but it was interesting. I mean, the, the, the climate was minus 40 in the average, minus 40 in the winter, plus 40 in the summer. Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was a, definitely a leap of faith, but uh, fun. Just at a, at a personal level, again, you know, thinking about some of the listeners, maybe at a sort of, a, a, thinking about a similar crossroads in their career, you know, is is that type of venture worth it again especially with sort of youngsters and a young family i mean what what was that like i mean how do you even bring up a conversation like that with your mm. wife like why don't we all just go and live somewhere we don't know we don't know anyone we don't have a support network you say healthcare's a little bit remote we don't speak the language i mean do you do you look back on that and think it was this kind of you know incredible foundational sort of time or was it was it actually pretty tough well it's always tougher for the spouse for sure, in an environment like that, you know. So, so of course, I had the the day job to, to go and uh, and try and drive the business, and we were, you know, we had a growth agenda. It was uh, big ambitions in an unknown environment, um, which took a lot of navigating. He carried a fair fair bit of stress with it, but you know, kudos to my wife because that that is where it all happens. I mean, you've got to find somewhere for the kids' nursery. You've got to find friends in the in the uh, expat ecosystem. And, you're familiar with the expert ecosystem in Dubai. Let me tell you, it's a different environment. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I probably had the advantage that my wife had uh, grown up as an expat in Hong Kong. Okay. So her, the mental image of what an expat uh, life cycle is like, 
uh, is was, was you know clear in her mind. So we, we saw a different side of uh, expat living in Kazakhstan. It was different experience, had probably a, more than its fair share of challenges, um, but enriching at the same time for all of us, I'd say. Yeah, I mean, at a business level as well, I mean, very practical. I mean, you've obviously worked in different cultures like mm -hmm. America, but in English. And um, I mean, how do you, uh, forgive me, I mean, maybe you're going to tell me you're a, an exceptional linguist who, who picked it up very quickly, but, but how do you sell and how do you have meaningful business conversations and establish relationships in a, in a, in a culture and a language which is uh, distinct and, and, uh, and you're not, you haven't previously been a part of? Mm. So in Kazakhstan, the, the business language is Russian. Of course, the Kazakh nationals are speaking Kazakh. Um, I mastered neither of them. <laughs> um, but of course, SAP, a, a big global international company, uh, as part of our uh, interview process, obviously, we're, we're interviewing people that are fluent in English. Um, so, you know, and that's important, firstly, because, of course, when you're, when you're bringing people into a company, any company, I mean, same, same mandate at Cycle, right? We're bringing people into a company. We want them to be there for a journey, right? Uh, um, and if you want to have a journey that doesn't have international uh, boundaries, or you want to go and have the opportunity to work overseas, you need to be able to command uh, the English language. It's just that, that global passport, as it were, to wherever you want to go. Um, so we employed um, a really good team of people that I had the pleasure of bringing on some some really talented folks um, who, you know, it was a big, a big um, aspiration for, for folks in that region to be employed by such a big blue chip uh, as SAP. Yeah. Um, we, of course, would, would be investing in their development, but also we, we because of the nature of the beast, um, we, we had our pick of the crop, as it were. So... If you look at some of the programs that were, were run there, there was a, one in particular called the Boloshek program. Uh, the Boloshek program was um, an initiative that was launched by um, the president, a chap called Nazarbayev, uh, who'd been there for, for many, many years, and, and, it, um, and it means future. So the word Boloshek means future. So he, he would identify through a program of activity those folks that, or those kids that had the highest uh, academic potential um, put them on a track and then part of their education was to go overseas uh, during their degree but in return for that you had to return to Kazakhstan and do your do your time as it were uh, yeah. and give back uh, and those guys um, were you know well educated highly motivated and Kazakhstan is quite a small community in, in the grand scheme of things by, by population and so therefore they because of the nature of the environment which they're in they had a, their network with which they they operated as well so um, by bringing in young talent who were willing to learn, investing in that, um, in that environment meant that actually we made them very successful. And you know, we, all we had to do was reframe um, what's the art of the possible, uh, help them to educate uh, the leaders in in, in industry uh, in the country, and we had a, a very enjoyable uh, growth journey. It was it was phenomenal. Yeah, um, yeah very good. Uh, and I wonder, I mean, one of the things you said, you know, we've um, uh, you know, I've worked in sort of setting up offices around the, around the world, and one of the things I often find is the struggle is is actually that kind of that company culture and how you sort of bring that around. And you touched on this earlier when you're talking about you know the, the, the different roles you had, and you know some were you know say not suffering fools, and you know others were different. And and but I mean you've got SAP as you're saying, which is a, a very established blue chip organization with a a culture, but you also go into a really interesting and and. Um, part of the world, which again would have been, um, you know, in that kind of you know old 
USSR, I suppose, mm-hmm. you know, still an organized place finding itself. And uh, um, um, to your to to uh, as you're describing, you've got a kind of a an emerging economy there anyway, mm-hmm. and a group of sort of you know young um, but promising superstars. I mean, how do you how do you not just recruit the talent, I suppose, but how do you actually nurture them into a culture which is part of their region, but also distinctly a, something SAP would recognise and mm-hmm. you know effective. Well, first and foremost, it's about the values, right? And you know in Certain geographies around the world, especially where there's emerging markets or there's you know, different dynamic culture there and business culture, um, there are uh, uh, sort of working practices that are deemed to be acceptable, perhaps locally, that would not be deemed to be acceptable by a publicly traded, um, you know, software firm like SAP and or other uh, in international brands like like Cycle, right? Um, so the first and foremost, we we have, we had a very very strong uh, leaning to our values. Um, which is, of course, to, to do business um, as we would anywhere else in the world, uh, transparently uh, delivering on the promise, making sure that um, we, we lived to that. Um, and, it, and it was challenging. You know, we had to we had a partner ecosystems who, who you know are used to working in a local environment, and, and we set very high standards. We had to make sure that you know we, we adhere to them, and sometimes that involves difficult conversations with with uh, with folks. But uh, ultimately, you you, sh- you have to stick the course. Um, which we did, and, and you know, lots of war stories for, from all of that. But uh, you know, we, we came out the other side strong, um, and, it, and it was very enriching, I think. And, and some of the, the folks that we had there um, have you know, since moved within SAP to other parts of the world. One or two went over to Dubai, one or two that came into, into Europe, into Ireland, and, and so on. So you know, we kind of delivered on the promise back to those guys that uh, you know, uh, you know, if you're successful and you play by the, the rules of the uh, you know, in your local country, then you know there's opportunity for you internationally. But but to your point earlier, like how do you communicate with you know C-suite customers when you when you don't speak the language? It, it's through the the account executive. It's through you know they were translating those meetings. So you really do have to empower. What you learn is you have to empower uh, um, the team to to do the job. It's a little bit like uh, I have this discussion with the with the the, the sports teachers at, at school where my kids are. You know, so during the practice sessions, you you coach kids, and when they make a mistake, you you stop the game, you explain the mistake, and so on. Of course, yeah. but when it comes to a match against you know the, the school around the corner, you can't be standing on the sideline bellowing out uh, you know instructions left, right, and centre. You have to let them sort of learn, but you have to empower them to to crack on. It's a little bit like the same when when I was uh, in, in Kazakhstan. So we spent a lot of time preparing for meetings. We did you know our account planning. We did. Uh, look at you know how are we going to structure this conversation? Who are the people we need to influence? What's the message to each of them? We we went through the the ba- you know, we call it the basics. There's things that we can quite easily forget that there is there is a, a best practice that you can employ. Um, so we did a lot of preparation, and and then the guys you know executed. And and sometimes we executed you know perfectly, and other times we 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 uh, reflected deeply after the meeting. Um, but but altogether, no, it was great. So for for me as a as someone who was in in their country, not not mastering their language, and you know, a shame on me for for not doing that. But um, um, you know, it, it forced the issue. It forced yeah. that you have to hire well, trust that they can do the job, empower them to to do it, uh, and hold them accountable for the outcome. And and that that recipe uh, seemed to serve me well. There's, I think there's, this is part of the joy of well of working in different different cultures, different countries, different places. Is that kind of that experimentation to understand what what 
what what is it that people do that is nature and what is nurture? What is that? What is the stuff that we all as humans share? And what are those kind of ways of interacting and persuading and um, and uh, and discourse which are actually very culturally sort of you know based? Mm. You know, do you start off with small talk and move to business, or start with business and move to small talk? Do you um, you know, can you be direct in your face, maybe as you would be to maybe when you're in America and be very blunt with people? Or do you need to be more subtler and sort of, you know, diplomatic with um, other other types of cultures? And I think that and and I, and I suppose all of the, um, the 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 roles you're you're having are, are taking you to a place where obviously now you're you're in that global role and you can you can begin to understand and see that nuance in all of the different sort of the, the markets, mm-hmm. I suppose. But before we get to Sitecore, you said you had um, two different parts to to SAP. There was a, a second stint. There was a second stint. Um, so between the first and the second stint, actually, it's, it, the, the story continues in, in Kazakhstan. Actually, so you know, as I said, I, I, I'd been empowered the team to to make sure that we were able to to sell to our customers, but to to actually have impact um, at a national level, we had big ambitions. Right, so. Um, we also bring in some of our executives who, who would fly in to, to meet um, state dignitaries in, in the country. We managed to get, you know, our, our um, regional president at the time, a uh, chap by the name of Frank Cohen, he, he came in on, on a couple of three occasions to meet with ministers of, of, of various uh, entities and, and drove us, uh, you know, supported us in, in raising the profile of, of our ambition of what technology could offer the, the state. Um, anyway, long story short, you know, I, I was I was leaving the, the country to take on a new new challenge within uh, SAP, um, but but had the opportunity to to present at long last to uh, the chief executive of the National uh, Sovereign Welfare Fund, a company called Samrak Kazinar. So Samrak is a holding company, a sovereign fund. Um, it had at the time it was about three hundred fifty thousand people. It was a sixty billion dollar business. And it had, you know, the the National Rail, National Oil Company, utilities, and you know everything was in there. So very small. <laughs> so, you know, we we've been selling to the various entities for, for you know over the course of time for, for a number of years. What we wanted to do was was help to transform the country. And fortuitously, um, the president had had described in in a formal document uh, the necessity for the company to diversify away from fossil fuels. Um, so we took that and, and drafted a, a proposal that was said, listen, here's the theory. If, if, if you can adopt technology to better run the assets that you have today, better run your oil company, better run your, you'll save a load of money. You can run more efficiently. But more importantly, you're going to build the local talent, which they called uh, local content. You're going to build the skill set into the local people to be able to establish and grow and scale IT services at a much faster rate than you are now. So there's like a, uh, an injection of energy into that sector. Mm-hmm. And then uh, at some point down the line, you'll be able to service the surrounding company, countries who are also asset rich, but perhaps a little bit not, not quite as mature as Kazakhstan back at the time. So that was the, that was the theory. Um, and, and long story short, I ended up um, being asked to be the chief information officer, reporting to that CEO of the, of the fund. Um, for a few years, so that was my my interlude. And you were talking about uh, how did I work in a in a in a, an international company like SAP in Kazakhstan with the language barriers. At that point, I was working for you know a national company. Yeah. I was one of a couple of people in the entire building that spoke English. So slightly different situation. At that point, I had a 
full-time synchronous translator because you know everything had to be translated and of course in a lot of uh, detail so that that was a, a three or two and a half year foray um, to drive national transformation through a digital agenda yeah. uh, there and I suppose for those people who come from you know Britain like ourselves to, to survive to, to be in one of those emerging economies you know the sovereign wealth funds me most famously you know the PIF at the moment in Saudi mm-hmm. you know are kind of wildly interesting ways of investing in the kind of tangible and intangible infrastructure of that of that whole uh, country I suppose it goes beyond simply you know not to be in a, speak in a pejorative sense but you know an ERP or a software system I mean you are literally trying to shape the future of a of a of a country and a country of which you are a visitor uh, sort of a an outsider you're mm-hmm. an other I mean and um, I mean that must have just been uh, must have been you must be very proud right I mean it's quite a, to be asked to do that job and you must feel a sort of a kinship to the, the country yeah yeah actually and, and then you know the you know, like all these sovereign welfare funds, they have a board. It was chaired by the, the prime minister uh, in Sydney at the time. Uh, obviously, close, close, uh, closely overlooked by the, the president of the country because all the assets are in there, and have a board of directors. So they have you know good, strong governance. And and on that board, there was um, Sir Dick Evans, who former formerly running BAE, and he'd been there for many years. Um, you know, so there, there were some some um, key figures. Who understood the, the value proposition of what what I was trying to explain, uh, and were able to um, you know share uh, you know uh, through their um, positions and, and through their relationships that they established their trusted relationships. That, you know this this sounds like a, a you know a, a good direction to move in, um, but it was a it was a phenomenal experience and you know um, again an extraordinary uh, challenge. Um, yeah. You know and. And testament to the fact that you made the jump, right? I mean, you don't get that that offer of an opportunity if you're sitting in London, right? You you get it by going on the adventure and uh, and proving yourself, I suppose. But but then obviously, one when, when your time there's done, you go back to SAP. Yeah, back to SAP. It w- wasn't wasn't my planned uh, route, to be honest. Uh, I, I'd done my time in Kazakhstan. We returned uh, back to the UK. I think my my wife had endured an, a, enough of Central Asia by that time. The kids were were growing up. Um, so I came back to the UK and um, you know I was just gonna relax for a little bit, uh, and then I got got a, a phone call from uh, from Steve. I'd worked a little bit with um, uh, some uh, a software startup in in London, just advising on their go to market, um, more as a hobby than, than anything else. And and then Steve called me and, and said, "Look, I've got a, a an ambitious opportunity to do uh, in <laughs> Southern Europe, the Middle East, and Africa." So um, phone calls from Steve are recurring yeah, milestones they, they on your are, timeline, right? Theme, yeah. <laughs> So yeah, um, yeah, took on the role for for him, and it was you know, SAP as a company is um, you know its its brand is is in large um, big companies running big ERP systems around the world. Uh, so of course, what he he asked me to look after was the opposite end of the spectrum, uh, which is the the SMB business or general business as it was termed, yeah. which is looking after companies who are uh, you know no revenue no more than five hundred million uh, a year. So. Very different, uh, you know, um, challenge because of course, it's not the the, the DNA of the company. It's not yeah. the focus of the investment, um, but the the growth aspirations were uh, were still clearly uh, written down on my on my scorecard uh, as ambitious. <laughs> yeah, and I suppose that speaks a little bit to the nature of change in nature of the ERP around that sort of stage. I mean, you know, so if if there was that, I think you know you 
you've captured a really interesting wave in terms of when you enter the job market and the rise of the internet and um, you know stepping off into that sort of software world. And then you've entered the ERP, which is very much in the first decade of the 20th century. My my take would be that yeah, that's where so much of the investment was. It was on internal operations and manufacturing and finance and how do we join these things up in large enterprise and moving down this ATSMB world. But at some point, you make a jump into Sitecore, which is different again. It's much more to do with it's much more to do with customer and customer experience as you started, rather than how do we automate and operationalize the sort of internal machinations of a business. I mean, were you, were you conscious of that choice when you were thinking about joining Sitecore? Or, you know, what was the kind of the, the motivation for for leaving SAP and, 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 uh, and coming to Sitecore? Um, well, a couple of things, really. I mean, one, in if you look at the way the world works today, um, it's just fundamentally different than it was, you know, back back in, you know, when, when I graduated. I mean, when, when was the last time you phoned a, a company and said, can I speak to your salesperson? Yeah. Yeah. I don't even know. It just right? doesn't happen, know. does it? E- even if you buy a car or, a, you know, or if you're looking for a house, you, you know, that's the last thing you do is it called to just check. You're checking what you've already learned. And, and what did you already learn? You learned all the stuff that you consumed online. So the reality today is that for any company, be you a service company or a product company, your digital product is your product. If you don't get that right, the customer doesn't find you. You don't get to have, you know, the opportunity to have a dialogue because people are self-serving. Yeah, Gartner uh, did a, a, a nice piece actually on on uh, enabling the digital buying journey. And again, this has evolved over time, but I think at the moment it's something like eighty-four percent of the buying process is happening online. Eighty-four percent. Yeah. So if you think about the balance, right? You know, if you are going to have some face time with the customer, it's somewhere in that last 16%. They're not just going to meet with you. They're going to meet at least two or three uh, other vendors. So now that your, your sphere of influence is, you know, single-digit percentage points of the entire process. So that's nuts. I mean, if you're fo- focusing all of your effort in, in the last mile, you, you know, you're, you're missing a trick, right? yeah. yeah. And, you know, as I said earlier, you know, what does Cycle do? We provide, you know, customer experience in the digital world. So all of that content, all of that customer experience has evolved. If you think back to when Cycle was born, you know, helping people to have a, a web presence, a, a website, that was, you know, it was a step into the right direction. It was a modernization. And, and of course, over the 20 years that's followed, Cycle has evolved and built the, the product offering and it's been a market leader over and over and over again um, and of course you know a couple of years ago two two and a half years ago we reached a point where we said you know we reached almost an inflection point which is we now need to establish a, you know, a new category for ourselves disrupt ourselves and and take all of the wonderful stuff that we've done knowing that you know it's no longer enough to be online you know you used to have to be online was just the thing now you've got to win online well to win online you, you've got to do more than just be there you've got to be able to provide you know those experiences that are stand out uh, and we all have you know as consumers a, a higher bar the bar gets higher every day uh, as to what we expect and and Cycle, I think has placed really well especially with the investments we've made in, in the last couple of three years you know to be brave enough first and foremost to, to take the take on the mantle and say we are going to disrupt our own market we're going to invest heavily to um, you know, acquire the technology to allow us to be this pure SaaS world, 
Why do we want to do that? Our customers want it. You know, it, you know the you know, the the world today expects things to happen fast. You know, if you think just the old days of of, of on-prem, you know, it's slow stuff. I mean, the projects are big; they take a long time. You know, irrespective of whether you're a, a, an info or an SAP, a PT, you know, it's it's a long project. Then you, then comes along the world of cloud. Well, cloud is is not slow; it's fast. But a composable cloud solution is faster. And so, you know, this is where uh, Cycle has, you know, focused on how can we deliver on the promise, make a customer experience uh, achievable for everybody, but in a cost-effective, timely fashion, in a way that, you know, it's the, it's the last upgrade you'll ever do. You, once you go on this journey, you're on that journey, and, and kind of we will continue to drive the innovation, and our customers will be able to um, get the fruits of that, uh, you know, the benefits from that along the journey. But of course, the, the utopia actually in, involves our partners, which is a you know, very conscious and big decision we, we took, um, again, a couple of three years ago. Our, our partner organization has grown and, and morphed over a couple of decades, um, and it's always been very close to the heart of Sitecore, of our founders, and Bjarne talks a lot about, you know, in fact, whenever he's, he's still very much actively uh, at our events, and, and it's amazing to see the number of people that, that he still knows and still know him, and, and, you know, it's been a long, trusted journey that we've been on with, with our ecosystem. But um, a couple of years ago, we made a big, big statement. Which we said, well, you know, we are, we are going to go partner first. Um, so now you go back to the, the, the picture I was drawing a moment ago, on-prem is slow, cloud is fast, a composable cloud solution is faster. But Utopia is a partner pre-configured solution to solve an industry-specific problem using the composable SaaS solution. That, that delivers even faster time to benefit for our customers. Uh, and helps our partners differentiate, and, and not only with Cycle, but differentiate in the market as a whole. So, you know, that's the, the kind of journey we've been on. And, and uh, you know, for those who don't know, I mean, when you joined in 2021, I think, mm-hmm. um, I mean, you, as you've touched on, I mean, there was an ambition at one level to to be that, kind of have that early mover advantage in terms of embracing that new sort of, you know, composable um, future. Because, I mean, as you've said, over its 20-year history, Cycle was one of two only two organizations who've always consistently been in that upper quadrant yeah. um, for, for Gartner and for other analysts. Um, and it's done that by continually disrupting itself and continually leading the field. Mm. And, you know, as you as you alluded in 2021, there was this kind of opportunity to disrupt again and take that that position, and which now is, I think, the, the, the first sort of end-to-end um, solution, composable solution. Um, but then you've also had a big round of funding as well. So, and I think you know, so you've uh, there's a sort of an opportunity to to use that money to sort of you know go on that journey. Um, and um, as you said, you you need to make a, a, a set of strategic decisions about you know how do you um, you know because you're not um, you're joined as a COO, you're not building the product per se, mm-hmm. um, and you're not actually. Um, you know, out there selling the product, but you need to, you know, create the organization or sort of evolve the organization to be able to, 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 to give you that competitive advantage. I mean, what were the sort of things in your mind when you sort of took on the job, you know, thinking back through, you know, SAP and Infor and all those other sort of other things that you were saying to yourself, okay, this is what we need to do to disrupt ourselves and the operations of, of this cycle business? Mm. Well, I guess, you know, first and foremost, yeah, we, we happen to make software but if you if you go back to the raw material you know we're a people business that's what we do we, we, we recruit 
talented engineers, we recruit talented product uh, managers, um, sales organization, of course, but we also have all of the workings that you, you need to have in any business for it to function well. Um, and, and COO roles vary, I guess, uh, for, for you know different companies, different roles. But for me, it's, it's quite a broad remit. Um, I have everything from operations. Uh, at one point, I initiated, obviously, our partner program uh, and, the, and the transformation of that. Um, we have uh, our enterprise technology group, uh, product support. Now I have the services, corporate um, mergers and acquisitions. So it's a broad remit. And, and I think, you know, from a leadership perspective, the challenge I had on day one was, you know, what, what, what's the common thread, the common denominator for my leadership team, for this group of people? We're 505 people, so 505 out of the near 2,000 Sikorians sit, sit in, in my organization, but we're this beautifully uh, rich, eclectic mix of folks um, from all different um, you know, backgrounds, all different remits, and of course we're geographically very diverse as well, because we have support hubs in, um, in Sofia, Kuala Lumpur, we have operations that that's still in, in Ukraine. Uh, we still have some, some folks that are there um, in Gatineau. Um, we have commercial hubs in um, Manchester, just north of Boston, and in Dublin, Ireland. So you know we've got this beautifully eclectic mix of people, and th and that's really um, one of the core things I think that, that differentiates us as, as an organisation. Um, but that common denominator, you know, we call it our, our team mantra, is that we we all deliver on the promise. So whether you're ET, well, you're, you're, we call it enterprise technology, but the, you know, the traditional IT function. If you're servicing tickets from, you know, which we get a lot of, you know, tickets from folks across the business, or if you're implementing, you know, new security uh, standards for our business, critical uh, for us to, you know, in today's world, you know, we've got to be very cognizant about how we operate our business securely in a trusted environment, uh, look after our employees, look after our customers, and, and so on. Um, when you look at the operations, I mean, operations is, is key to how we drive the business, um, giving us the insights to, to make um, you know, actionable decisions is, is important. So, you know, when I, when I think about uh, all of those different functions, you know, coming together to, to go on a, on a journey has been important because, you know, going from on-premise to uh, a SaaS, uh, on-premise to subscription to SaaS, requires an awful lot of uh, lift behind the scenes to make that happen. New, new process definition, new, new technology, new workflows, um, different processes that we didn't have before. Um, you look at our organization today, we have a, you know, a customer success team that wasn't, wasn't there five years ago. You know, you know, it was a different model. We had services, of course, to work and, and deliver our, our, our solutions to the customers hand in hand with our partners. But um, now we have a customer success organization. Their day job is to make sure that our customers are, are using the software and getting the best out of it. You know, they're adopting all the features, not just a few of them, you know, drive the value. Um, it's a different setup than it's before. Our, our um, support organization is 24-7. We've just over 200 people that are um, running to look after our, our customers 24-7, 365 days a year, uh, and again, that, that that's a that's a different world when you when you go from you know we had three platform products we now have a portfolio of including those three platforms we also have another, a portfolio of another 10 or 12 uh, SaaS products you know so it's evolving that that's part of the excitement of the journey is of course it's moving it's evolving we've had to inject a lot of energy into doing that but it comes with people we 
we acquired you know four or five companies um, two and a half years ago, um, and you know it was actually quite interesting. I'll, I'll share this soundbite with you. Is um, as a leadership team prior to the acquisitions, we 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 got together and we knew that we had to transform. We knew that we would we would have to fundamentally change the way we run the business to you know. Um, Ensure that we operated at the top, you know, in the top quartile across many of the the index, you know, gross retention, net retention, all of the customer satisfaction. So we knew that we would have to evolve. So we had to make a decision: do, do we transform the business and then acquire technology to to build out our SaaS vision, or do we acquire the companies first and then transform? And it didn't take long to debate that because the companies we aspired to to we didn't know who the companies were at the time. But we knew we were going to go for best-in-class, right? So we knew that best-in-class technology comes from best-in-class people. And best-in-class people that are born in the cloud have a certain mindset. They, they know how to do it. It might not be at scale or global scale, but they know the DNA. They have the DNA. So again, it comes back to that people equation. So we decided we would go on the journey and make the acquisitions first, um, which we did in you know, short shreds. We, we, I think we acquired... Four companies in, in, in you know almost as many months um, brought all, all of that on um, you know again an Irish company a US you know we, we again we had an eclectic mix there and then we all sat there and said right guys welcome to the cloud thanks very much great job you've done so far now we need to transform cycle together and and you know of course these these folks took up um, very strong leadership positions in our in our business so that we have a, very much a voice at the table to ensure that we we have a, a culture uh, that reflects our, our our DNA, um, both the, the DNA that we've established as Sitecore for 20 years, but also how you evolve that when you when you've added, you know, four or five acquisitions. You know, we yeah. we'd grown from 1,200 people to nearly 2,000 in two and a half years ish. Um, some organically, some through acquisitions. So it, it was fun, yeah. but uh, not not for the faint-hearted. Yeah. And I mean, what's the the advice you'd give now, Retrospect? Because I'm taken by the fact that actually. At certain points in your career, for example, like you moved to, to Kazakhstan, you've had to, you know, sure find talent. And as you're saying, the kind of the you've you've acquired best in class, and that comes from the best in class talent. And you know, some of those people have been a real accelerant to to Sitecore. And that from from the outside, it feels like though that merger uh, and sort of acquisition play has worked. Um, and you feel now as one team, but that couldn't have come for free, right? You 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 need you would have had to work on bringing those different actors together many of which would have been entrepreneurs not used to having a boss you know you have following maybe sort of you know um disparate visions as you said located to different parts of the world potentially come from organizations with different company values how do you so quickly and effectively bring those organizations together and make them feel like one team and actually you know point them in the, the direction you need them pointed well i think first and foremost you know clarity of vision is important you know you need to have that clarity of vision for everybody then to subscribe to and I think we actually had a bit of that vision as we were going into the acquisition phase so when we were a little bit like when you're interviewing for a job you know the the you know people always think it's the company interviewing the candidate well it's, it's equally important the other way I always say to the guys that that, um, that that we bring on board you know this is this is as much you deciding which company to work for as us selecting you and, and, and it was the same for, for the acquisition so we were charting out Here's how we're going to disrupt the industry, mm. and we think you're part of it. And so that, at least the North Star, was was known from the outset. Now, of course, when you actually, you know, get it, get into the mechanics of things, and 
you know that there are change there is change that you have to drive um uh, to make these things happen of course there are you know you, you start stop you go and, and you but you have to keep reiterating you lose all the the, the principles i mean we actually uh, established the transformation office we appointed uh, a very seasoned uh, individual to to run that transformation office uh, chap that he was the coo from box ever one of the companies we acquired uh, and he, he did a fantastically uh, inclusive job of, of establishing our transformation program we didn't we didn't sit as an executive leadership team in a dark room and and figure out what it was and, and go and dictate how, how the company's going to run we actually went we, we knew it took a little bit longer but it, we figured it'd be worth it at the beginning we'll take a bit of time we'll run workshops we'll run workshops with you know no more than a dozen people in them because we want everybody to have a voice we want to hear everybody's point of view we um we run a lot of workshops over two or three months intensively and and then from there we started working our, our, our working groups uh, and put together a plan but it was a co collective effort with it with with guardrails in terms of you know we had a time frame and we, we couldn't get too carried away but um you know a collective effort to get to a plan everybody signed up for it each each element of the plan had a uh, an executive leader sponsor sponsor we had working groups that were put together people were permitted to you know we made room in their uh, sort of run the business time to to make room for for, for change yeah. and off we went and um yeah i mean listen when you when you're trying to do transformation at the speed we were trying to do it um you know it's not monday to friday nine to five yeah. i mean that's not the environment we we're in right um you know we we wanted to disrupt the market we didn't we didn't want to do it over another decade we wanted to do it over over the shortest time possible and, and to be fair if you look at where we are you know all of that conversation was was two and a half years ago uh, and xm cloud which was sort of the the, the the cherry on the cake, as it were, uh, came out. Was it October? Not a bit earlier, mid mid, mid to latter part of uh, last year. Yeah. And um, you know, where are we today? We've got you know, we'll be approaching a, a hundred new customers on, on that product soon. And and the reality is that everything we did over the last two years, two and a half years, acquiring companies, embedding them into our organisation, you know, hiring new new people into the into the Building new products, all of that stuff, reimagining our partner ecosystem, building an enablement function, um, all of these things were to get us to where we sit literally now. Yeah, yeah. It was all to get here. Now, it just so happens that on that journey, we managed to maintain uh, a growth in our business. I mean, if you look at our business, we've spent you know a decade of double-digit compound annual growth. We haven't missed a step. And if you think about what's happened over the last decade, we've had, you know, we've had the COVIDs, we've had, um, you know, the challenges of the economic environment as we see it even today. Um, but we've we've managed to maintain uh, our, our trajectory in a growth uh, in a growth direction all, all the way through that. And as I said, it was to get to where we are. So if you ask me, what are my thoughts looking forward? I say, George, we we've just the, the, the starting starting whistle's just gone. Right? It's only just started. I mean, everything we've done was to get to this point, mm -hmm. a full end-to-end -end SaaS portfolio that disrupts the market. We have it. We've got our first nearly 100 customers uh, at XM Cloud and all the other governments uh, that's in there. We know that when our customers are, uh, are, are not only using one of our products, but as they use two, three, four, it's not, um, you know, it's driving all the right behavior. We see more share of wallets. We're seeing higher uh, gross and net retention numbers. So. As customers are expanding their relationship with Sitecore, they're expanding their investments with Sitecore,
their loyalty to Sitecore. And, and of course, we're replicating that. We're investing to make sure that we've got the right customer success. We're investing to make sure we're enabling our partners correctly. So we have to deliver on the promise yeah. uh, to maintain that. But I, I think, you know, I've never been more excited about where we are as a company now. And, uh, you know, <laughs> there's been blood, sweat and tears to get here, but but we're here. And uh, and I think it's, uh, yeah, it's an exciting journey. And for any Sitecore customers that have maybe been around for, for a wee while and who whose who's previous or who's indeed existing relationship with Sitecore has maybe been much more of that kind of, you know, on-prem or even sort of subscription type relationship. Maybe you can help them understand, um, you know, not, not, not so much the sort of, you know, the, the, the technical challenge of moving or anything like that, but what is the different type of relationship you they will have with Sitecore when they are uh, uh, they're using the SaaS based products? You know, and you're no longer just giving them a CD. Effectively, mm-hmm. you are you are actually operating you know um, parts of their their business, their customer experience, mm-hmm. the very way as you said that that they gain competitive advantage through that customer experience through the 84% I believe you said of you know the um, of, of the way they're communicating with their customers they're going to have to trust you and have a deeper relationship I think with with you as Sitecore maybe that you can help understand the, the, the benefits of, of SaaS beyond merely the products but actually in terms of the relationship with Sitecore yeah great question I mean well I guess there's a number of elements that firstly on, you know on the technology side the pace of innovation is high right so you know the, the, the product is not, in, in the on-prem world, you'd, you'd release a new product once every six or 12 months, uh, you know, maybe small increments in between. In the SaaS world, it's, a, it's almost like an always-on activity. So as engineering is evolving new technology, new features, new capabilities, it becomes available. So it, it's that, that pace of innovation. Once you step into the, you're stepping into a vehicle which is just moving fast, right? So you're in that vehicle, it's going fast, uh, and, and it's iterating Almost, it's like almost like a living, breathing organism. Um, um, so that, that that's that's one key element to it. The second thing, of course, is um, a lot of the things that that perhaps the CMO's not so you know got front and foremost, but the CIO has is around security. Right. So we've got to make sure that we've got a, a product which is you know absolutely taking all the boxes as it relates to the security uh, of the technology, um, because companies are putting their trust in us. We've got to make sure that we've got the right infrastructure. Uh, and of course, we partner with. You know, we're not an infrastructure company. Uh, we partner with the best infrastructure companies in the world, the Microsofts and AWS of the world, to make sure that uh, we've got you know the the stack from from top to bottom. Uh, and because we're in the SaaS world, of course, you know customers don't have to to worry about all of the the nuances of of, of that entire stack from top to bottom. You know, we, we're doing that as a turnkey solution, which is why you know we've had to invest and make sure that we've got. You know, state-of-the-art technology in our products, with you know security front and center every step of the way, uh, making sure that we're you know educating our partners on how, how we you know how we orchestrate these things uh, and so on and so forth. So, I think there's a lot lot of elements in, in the in the mix, um, but ultimately we 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 see um, you know that that journey we're on with with customers being one of building trust, if I can put it as as bluntly that as long as we as long as we continue to deliver on the promise and as long as we deliver quick time to value um, and customers are, are winning through delivering outstanding customer experience to their their consumers, yeah. I guess um, we'll be in the right direction. And I think that's one of the central insights I think Sitecore has, which I'm not entirely sure everyone understands, is you know, thinking back to you know, your, your first job selling you know, sheets of carbon fiber to um, you know, space shuttles and Formula One and whatever, 
the guy running that business has grown up and spent 40 years in his career or her career understanding carbon fiber and has a, a human sales force going out having those conversations and now over the course of your career over the course of you know less than a generation that 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 uh, ceo now is in a world where it, it's it's no like the he or she no longer needs to just understand about carbon fiber and about mm-hmm. his manufacture mm-hmm. and, and and hire enough people to go out and sell it but needs to be able to fundamentally communicate with with customers in a, in a in a different way for the very reasons you're sort of articulating um and it's it's at that stage especially in the SaaS based world where it's not just about a product it's about you know who do you trust to actually help you orchestrate that and to your point you know bringing together the insights about not just code, but uh, not just with security, but about industry and about best practice and about design and about you know those different sort of um, cultures and multi-language and all of those reasons why you choose an enterprise piece of technology like Sitecore rather than some Frankenstein's monster of open source or whatever it might be. And I suppose it's that type of thing that I think, and to your point about customer success, the Sitecore's really excelled at and I think sets them up. It's it's not just the software; it's anything. You know, it's it's a lot more beyond that in terms of the relationship for these CEOs and how they can run their business. And the, and I suppose the, the last thing that really struck me, you know, was listening to to Steve, your, your um, perennial cold caller, um, uh, you know, a talk on stage a, a couple of months ago, talking about ChatGPT. I mean, you talk about XM Cloud being launched in October, November last year, of which ChatGPT we would we would have been what's that? You know, mm. but now it's you know topic du jour, and every CEO out, you know, including those making carbon fiber, need to be able to th- you know think about it. And I suppose the benefit of Sitecore is that in that fast-paced world, they don't need to do all of that thinking alone. You guys are thinking. You guys are already announcing how you're integrating into the product. And if on, they're on that path with Sitecore, then they get the benefits of all of that thought and all of that sort of you know innovation in in in, in the, the product suite. Yeah. by being, of being in that relationship with you. Absolutely. Let's, let's just clarify, you know, there are, as I was saying earlier, you know, what, what's the raw material? The raw material is people, right? We've got 2,000 of those people in the cycle. We've got another 22,000 of those people in our ecosystem. Mm. And if we think about, um, you know, as I said earlier, creating the shortest time to value comes from where partners understand a business problem that an individual uh, role has in an industry and they compose a solution to that that allow, delivers fast time to value. And, they, and they're going to look after that and maintain it and iterate on it and, and enrich it over time. I mean, we can't, we can't talk about how technology is evolving and not touch on you know, what, what AI is going to do. I mean, it, at, at its most fundamental, um, as we look at you know, how AI will uh, complement what, you know, what we do internally, when we run our internal processes and systems, we have uh, a very accomplished CIO uh, who is absolutely, you know, um, charging the course for us. I mean, not only does she bring an extraordinary amount of expertise as it to, as it relates to the sort of traditional IT or enterprise technology, as we call it, uh, function, uh, and, and has brought a huge amount of of change uh, and driven a huge amount of projects with with her team. I have to tip my hat to me to. It's, it's absolutely dumbfounding how, how much stuff they get done on a day-to-day basis. And, and of course, they're the unsung heroes. Part of uh, the COO group, we're all kind of unsung heroes in, in our function because we're, we're not the, the guys out there getting the glory and signing the deals, but we are the ones that keep the lights on, in inverted commas, as well as pioneer the new innovations, as well as driving the efficiency in the business. So, you know, I can't, can't uh, not comment on, on that team because they've, they've done such a great job. But 
our ecosystem is is going to help us figure out how we're going to solve for the art of the possible with AI. I mean, if, if we if we were naive enough thinking we were going to be able to run fast enough on our own uh, in this, you know, try to charter the direction uh, with AI, I think that would be um, that be short sighted. So we're taking an approach that says, yeah, we, we, we've got our own um, innovation team that are driving and, and challenging where, where is the art of the possible. We've actually employed or we've um, deployed a couple of use case scenarios internally. So our, our, in our uh, customer service function, we have a use case uh, up and running and one in uh, our IT team. Yeah, and we're running a hackathon in, in September, sorry, October, yeah. Hackathon in October where we've got everybody's come to the table with some new ideas of how they want to deploy internally, new use cases. Um, and then of course we, we've got to look at how do we build AI into our product and how do we enable our products to be open enough to allow our ecosystem to, to dream up the art of the possible and, and extend um, you know, the cycle offering hand in hand uh, with, with uh, use case scenarios. So I think it's, it's going to be an interesting interesting journey this this one what you you've talked about those two sort of concentric circles of the 2000 psychorians and the 22000 in sort of the wider ecosystem part network and what's your advice then in the future as you as you look forward i mean what are what's your advice as to sort of you know the sort of things they should be looking at and the sort of things that the sort of ways you want them to be partnering with you or, or working internally partners you would think for, for partners or for for uh, internal people well, let's talk about the internal folks first. Um, again, we, we run um, a survey, internal survey, periodically. It's called Voice of the Passionate People, and it's a, it's a really good apt term, actually. And, and of course, you get feedback. Some of the feedback is extremely positive. Some of the feedback in, in shows you areas that you can improve on. And one of them was career pathing. Right? So it's not really surprising. A company that's gone from 1,200 people to a couple of thousand people in a very short period of time um, people want to understand where, where is the opportunity to grow within Sitecore. And as I, I shared the experience that, that I had with some of my team in previous uh, companies, it's a super important thing uh, that we can create opportunity for people. Um, we are leaning very much towards build it versus buy it, meaning we want to bring talent into our business and we want to keep them there. But to keep people there, uh, you don't want to do it on, on you know, handcuff treatment. This is you want people to be motivated and inspired and, and enriched and, and have that opportunity to grow. Um, and I think as a as a company that's reached the scale that we have, I think we have a great, even more more viable opportunity to create that. But it takes effort. So again, we now have the the task. It's a work in progress to to chart out what are the career paths. You know, customer service managers, the the application support engineers. The product managers, you know, there, there's a lot of uh, roles and functions in the business which have a lot of crossover in the sort of raw skills, uh, and therefore they're transferable. And of course, whenever you take on a new job, uh, there are there, there's a moment where where you, you realise, my, I don't know everything, and of course that's a good thing. As long as you quickly chart the way, how am I going to add my knowledge along the journey? You were saying earlier, you know, as you get to you know further and further up the organisation, you cannot be the master of all. So, um, you know, it's about empowering people to, to get the job done. Um, you know, trust, empower, and hold accountable for, for the different, different elements. So I, I hope that over the course of time, from an internal perspective, you know, the, the opportunity for our employees 
you know, grows and enriches, uh, and we will proactively be trying to encourage that, which is why we're, we're investing in uh, enablement uh, across the business. And then, of course, for our, for our partners, it's, it's also a slightly different equation. Um, we, we know that we've got a, a new portfolio of products, and there are many different ways to approach you know, composing a solution. Um, and we think that we, we as Sitecore should have a, a point of view on that, right? So, you know, we, not only, of course, do we look to our partners to bring uh, a point of view and an innovation to us, we also need to be able to sit down and, you know, have that sort of, here, here's the foundational thoughts that we have. Here, here's how the sort of the Sitecore best practice. Here's how we think uh, would be a good starting point. Yeah. You know, note, I choose those words carefully because, you know, 22,000 people in the ecosystem, there's a lot of intellectual capacity in there, right? So we don't by any means uh, suggest that, you know, we, we know the best way all the time, but we, we would like to have a point of view for which, you know, everyone can, can, can adopt and build upon or adopt, at least be aware of and iterate upon. Um, but either way, it will collectively as that group of 22 plus 2,000, uh, you know, people in our, in our joint uh, ecosystem, we, we'll evolve on that journey yeah certainly we felt that that difference um you know since uh, since steve and yourself and and others have come on board we've really felt that difference in terms of what it means to partner just a final final question last question i i always ask just i don't know why but for no apparent reason i'm fascinated um uh, by uh, by a question um that was once asked to uh, richard Feynman, who's a famous physicist about you know if he were to um only be able to pass on one piece of information to a future generation only one thing what would he say um, and I think that's a kind of interesting question as we have, you know, talk through your career, you know, going back through it all, all the stuff you've learned, all the stuff you've, um, you know, committed to. And, and um, I suppose if you just had one piece of advice for, for general people, or I know you've got a, um, a son and daughter you're very proud of, right, you know, future uh, hockey stars. Um, if you were to give them just one piece of advice from your career, the, the one thing that you wish you'd known when you were sort of starting out other than, you know, have a go at rugby. Um, what uh, what would that one piece of advice be? Gosh, that, that is a tricky one. If if I frame it towards my kids, it's always like you follow your passion. Uh, you know, to the point we said earlier. You know, should you know, do do you want to go on a, on a career journey uh, from the get go? I think when you were young, you got the energy, and you, you graduate from university, you've you've done the first career. You've done you got your GCSEs, your A levels, your degree, whatever. Yeah, I think you've I think you can take a year or so go on explore the world or kick a ball or whatever it is that you want to pursue uh, as your first foray into the next chapter because uh, you've, you've got the rest of the time to work look at your, your career um, in terms of gen general advice I think uh, learning for life is probably is probably the, the one I'd lean into and uh, that doesn't mean necessarily academically going to you know constantly but being open to learning you know so being open to um, learn from peers from, from partners from others I, I ran a, um, uh, a young talent development program at a previous company and I used to say to the guys look you know, the, and these folks were in their um, early 20s early to mid 20s to early to mid 30s and and they were always wanting to have um, you know a, a mentor and experience in fact this is what we've launched a, a mentoring program at Sitecore but so that so the, the principle is the same which is it's not a one-way street you know, I might have 25, 27 years experience in the software industry doing blah, 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 blah. But you have a very different perspective than me because you you know, you were born in a different era, different generation. There's stuff that you take for granted, which, you know, 
it puts it a different lens on, on a thing and, and that's a really healthy thing to have. So I think to, to have that mutual respect yeah. um, across um, generations, across functions, across um, organizational levels in, in, a, in, a, in a business, I think is, is absolutely at the core. I think that's the bit um, that allows for learning for life uh, through peers and, and yeah. so on. That's a great way to finish because I think that, you know, just like you, you know, Sidecore survived by continually disrupting itself. I think you're saying the same thing about a modern career. You need to continue to onboard information and learn and then continue to disrupt yourself and, and what that means, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a great way to finish. So look, thank you very much. I really appreciate the, the time you've taken and uh, it's been fascinating. I think there's a lot of really great insights here for everyone. So thanks for taking the time. Appreciate it. Thanks very much.